Let's pray. Let's go. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, uh, for this Monday. We thank you for the, uh, the chance that we could be together to study your word, to study aspects of church history and um, what that means for us as your people, that um, we, we actually come from a family that uh, spans generations and centuries and millennia. And so, uh, God, we ask for your help today that you would help us to know our past and um, so that we can live, uh, live rightly and appropriately, that we can learn um, from what has happened to believers um, centuries ago so that we can learn how to live rightly today. And we know what you are doing and how you're working uh, in the world and have been working in the world um, from the beginning of time, uh, but in particular from, uh, from the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross and his resurrection. And uh, so God, help us to um, be attentive and uh, alert and give us the capacity to, uh, to see and understand what it is you'd have for us tonight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen and amen. All right, so I'd invite you to turn into your Bibles to Acts. Uh, I would say from Acts 6-ish, 7-ish, 9-ish. Did anybody acquire a study Bible from last week, since last week? No? No? I did. You did? Sort of. On accordance? Yeah, I Yay. Re- reactivated my, basically, account and downloaded it and installed it. And so. Wonderful. Good. Um, because those are just great resources, especially when we're, when we're going to be, you know, using maps or things. And a lot of your Bibles would have maps in the back uh, anyway. And so that would just be helpful. Uh, so, so I have you turn in your Bibles to Acts 6, 7-ish or so. Um, we're going to be looking all the way up through chapter 15 of Acts, and then also to have a bookmark in Galatians. Um, at the beginning of Galatians, we'll go through that entire book. And so a recap of where we were last week. Last week we looked at three major areas that were uh, the background to first century Christianity. Somebody tell me what, name one of those three areas. Three backgrounds. Large geographic areas. Uh, the, the 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 cultural backgrounds that Jewish. we're feeding into. The Jewish Greek. is one. Mm-hmm. Greek is one. Roman. And Roman background. Okay, somebody want to name one thing they remember that was significant about each of those backgrounds. What was one significant thing about the Jewish background? They're the scriptures. The scriptures. The Hebrew the scriptures. Okay. We got the, and I said Hebrew scripture, so we knew it was written in Hebrew, right? Uh, so the Hebrew scriptures, that was one significant thing for the Jewish background. Greek language. The Greek language, right? So that would be from the Greek, mm-hmm. the, the Greek influence. Yep. From who? Who was the guy? The Alexander major warrior? The Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, right. And so, and what was the process by which he wanted to, to make uh, Asia Greek? Hellenization. Hellenization, very good. Uh, so we did uh, Roman, Greek, Hebrew, uh, or Jewish background. But what was one thing that the Romans were did? Did yeah. 
co-opt the Greek culture to they, a large extent? Yeah, they could totally. They were not very inventive, yes. They were like, what should we have for religions? Well, the Greeks have. Oh, that's pretty good. We'll keep that. Largely. So. Architecture. Architecture. Uh, roads. What's that? Emperor, Emperor worship. worship. Yeah, that is a big is. one that has will will factor into uh, the first century Christianity. I think peace is a thing that gets understated, but the, the peace of the Romans yeah. happening at the yeah. exact time it did allowed for a lot of opportunities that may not have existed in the more brutal world. Yeah. Pax Romana. Yeah. Um, and so, what did what did that enable to happen in the Roman world? Flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. When I was when I when I went to Israel, we would go and tour sites of ancient um, uh, ancient Old Testament sites. And one thing you would notice about every single one of them, there would be a wall around it, and there would be one gate. There would be one entrance in, right? You didn't want to have multiple gates because those were a point of weakness to uh, to conquering. Uh, when you get to the Roman era, <laughs> you see the disappearance of gates and walls. Um, because if you were the mightiest military power and you know, that was a kind of a sign of your strength was that you didn't need uh, walls and uh, those sorts of things. So yeah, so that is, uh, so you had this expansion of the Roman Empire and you had tra travel, communication, uh, um, commerce that was happening. All of those were very important. Okay, so uh, but now back to the Jewish background, what were the four main Jewish groups the four main Jewish groups. Scribes. Scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees. Good job, Steve. Good recovery there. Uh, you got half credit. I know you had to go Only half. Of them. <laughs> the Sadducees. What do you know about the Sadducees? They were sad. They were sad. Why were they sad? No resurrection. No resurrection. That's right. Good job, Charlie. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> So the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They were the wealthy, the kind of the elite, the 1%. The Pharisees, what do you remember about the Pharisees? Any? They were not very <laughs> <laughs> That's actually kind of good. We might, get, we might get to that a little bit. Okay. Anything else about Pharisees that you remember? The teachers of the law, right? Okay. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, what about the other two groups? What do you remember? Caleb? Zealots. The zealots. Very good. And what were the zealots known for? Uh, not being particularly friendly to the Romans. <laughs> well put. That is well put. That's a little of an understatement, too, right? Because they, they'd often carry daggers with them and be the dagger bearers. That would be the zealots, right? I, um, I still got a chuckle with, a couple times this week from Caleb's comment last week about the, the, the goat, the most significant goat in history when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, uh, that was really funny. Um, then uh, the goat of goats, as Rosie said. And then the Essenes were out in the wilderness, and they were the ones who had the Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, the Essenes. Oh, okay, so we're going to spend a little bit of time today talking a little bit more about the Jewish background. Uh, and we're going to be looking, begin here with the question, what was Judaism in the first century? What was first century Judaism like? Um, that's a big 
topic and a big discussion, but let me kind of give it just a little bit of background, and this is super generalization here, uh, but a little bit of a background. Uh, in the Old Testament, or prior to the Babylonian exile, Jewish life was centered around what? What would you say? Prior to the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 and the, the southern kingdom in 586, what would be, where would Jewish life be centered around? Temple. Oh, it was like, who said that? There was a voice over here in the conversation. <laughs> Uh, yes, very good job, Rachel. The temple in Jerusalem because of the sacrificial system. Then what happens with the conquering of the southern kingdom in 586, the destruction of the temple, and then the exile in Babylon. They do come back. They do end up rebuilding the temple uh, uh, some period of time. But at this point, Jewish life was kind of scattered all over. So they still had the temple, but as the, the, uh, the Jewish population was kind of scattered all over um, Canaan uh, or Palestine, you know, that, that area, as it was called by the Romans, but all over in the various villages, what, what had developed while they were in Babylonian captivity was the studying of Torah, studying of the Old Testament law. And that kind of kept going, even after the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem, they still had synagogue life. So synagogue would be, the, you'd have a synagogue in every village. You could have a synagogue once you had 10 males, 10 uh, adult males in, uh, in a village. You could actually have, then have a synagogue, and then they would get together for weekly um, scripture study. And that continued on, um, on through into the New Testament era. So just kind of give a little overview of kind of the generalities of, of uh, Jewish life. It still was centered in Jerusalem somewhat with the sacrificial systems uh, and the feasts and things that they would come down to. But a lot of the life was centered around the synagogues and studying uh, of the scriptures. Then we get the New Testament era. We get Jesus in the Gospels. And we know the story about Jesus. He is a Jewish um, just a commoner, a Jewish commoner from up north. He's born in where? Where was he born? This is not up north, but he's born in Bethlehem, which is in Judah. Uh, and But he's raised in where? Nazareth. Nazareth. So that would be up in Galilee, uh, in the Galilee area. And uh, he goes around teaching several years, uh, ends up crucified, dead, buried, then resurrected, appears to uh, many of the disciples as Paul tells us, even 500 at one time, and then he's ascended up into heaven. And so now you have the beginning then of this New Testament church, New Testament church community, um, which was primarily what ethnicity? Jewish, Jewish right? Um, and as a matter of fact, did you have any Jewish, any non-Jewish Christians uh, at the time of Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, or even maybe 10 years after that, did you have any Gentile Christians? Okay. You couldn't really say for sure. Yeah, I mean, he was probably Roman. not many. The Roman centurion, that he killed his daughter. He was a believer, right? He was a believer, yeah. but does that mean he would believe in Judaism or what would... 
He probably believed in the Torah at that point. Yeah. So. It could it could be, but that's a great example. Mm -hmm. So if there were some, they were kind of yeah. folded into this Christian community, but but um, but primarily the identity was almost exclusively Jewish, almost an exclusively Jewish identity. So uh, so then you have the spread of the gospel going all over the uh, the Roman Empire in the Book of Acts, the first uh, eight or so chapters. Persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, and they go all over. Then you start to see something very interesting happen. You have half Jews, ethnically half Jewish, the Samaritans, hearing the gospel and then believing it. And they were not Jewish. They didn't follow exactly like the Jewish um, system. They didn't do. They had their own place of worship up north, um, but they were ethnically half Jewish, the Samaritans. Um, and then something interesting happens in chapter 10. You have the first Gentile Christian in chapter 10 named Cornelius. Cornelius. And this becomes a very significant uh, event because now you have somebody who actually receives the Holy Spirit um, and he and his whole household, but he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish at all. He doesn't have a Jewish background at all. So here comes the main key question that you can see. Oh, did I have the hand up? Every, oh, thanks, Janet, for passing those on. So here's the first uh, key question that ends up uh, happening in the first, the first uh, maybe 15 or 20 years, uh, roughly about 15 years of the church life. Here's the question. How Jewish do Gentile, or how Jewish do Gentiles need to be to be truly Christian and to be saved. How Jewish do Gentiles need to be to truly be a Christian and to be saved? Oh, I didn't bring the dry erase board. That's okay. Well, I'll have to. There is no room for a dry erase board, so I'm going to have to create the visual picture, and you'll have you'll have to imagine me writing this down. Um, so how should, and in particular, kind of a related question to this, is how should Christians relate to then the law of Moses, uh, the law of Moses or the Mosaic Covenant? Okay? But the main question is, how Jewish do Gentiles need to be in order to be Christians? And so this will bring us to our very first group of uh, heretics and heroes, here, right here in the very first century. So if you could picture a spectrum, and I'll do over here on this side, Gentile non-Christians, okay, that's way over here on this spectrum, so not Jewish, so you could think Romans or, or Gentiles or, you know, any other nationality that would have been a, a part of that world at that time. Think of those over here on this extreme, and then over on this side, you have Jews who are very devout Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So these are not Christians over here. So over here on this end, you have Gentiles that don't believe in Jesus. And then over here, you have Jews who don't believe in Jesus. And then now you have inside of this group that would claim to be Christian, uh, now think you'd have Jewish believers over here on the this side. Okay, so we'll call them number one. This is category number one. Gentiles who are Christians who become Christians. And I would say if you would there, maybe we could say even at this extreme end of the spectrum, these would be Gentiles 
that would be like, I'm believer in Jesus, and then therefore the Old Testament law or the Mosaic Covenant and all the, the history and uh, religious practices and cultural practices of the Jews wouldn't be, are not relevant to me. Okay, That's on this end. But over here, then, you would have Jewish believers, which was the bulk of the church at that time. Jewish believers. And the question then becomes, well, wait a second. Christianity started here in this group. How, how, how much do these people need to become Jewish in order for them to really be Christians? So here's our very first, uh, very, very first group. And here's the term that you could use in your uh, handout, Judaizers. Let me spell it for you. J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S. Judaizers. And here's who the Judaizers were. If I could read a definition here to, for you. A party of Christians in the early church who thought it was necessary, excuse me, a party of Christians in the early church who thought it was necessary that Gentile converts to Christianity should be circumcised and observe the Jewish law. A party of Christians, so they would profess that they believe in Jesus as the Messiah, in the early church, who thought it was necessary that Gentile converts to Christianity be circumcised and observe the Jewish law. And in fact, they would go so far as to say that the Gentiles should become Jews in order to become Christians. They had to become Jews in order to be saved. Okay, so I invite you to turn with me um, into the book of Acts. And go to Acts chapter 15. We'll go to Acts chapter 15. Let me elaborate a little bit more here on this, the Judaizers. Um, Judaizing would be the process of adopting Jewish religious and cultural practices, uh, if, if not by full conversion to Judaism. Okay, so it could include, didn't necessarily require full inclusion to Judaism. Most, most often it did, but it was at least the process where you need to actually live Jewish. And this could be done by choice. This actually did happen uh, often. You would have proselytes, people who would convert, Gentiles who would convert to Judaism by their own choice. But sometimes it was also done by conversion or uh, coercion, coercion. Um, and as a matter of fact, even Gentile Christians who were influenced to become Jewish would then now become evangelists to make proselytes, other Gentiles to become Jewish too. So it, you, it didn't have to just be Jews who would cause Gentiles to do it. The Gentiles could then be recruited in that mission to make Jewish Christians to become uh, Jewish or Gentile Christians to become Jewish. And the term, if you want to look this up, is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, is where, the, where we have the term Judaize, to, to make converts to Judaism. And it's translated in the ESV as to, to live like Jews. We'll get to that verse a little bit. But that's, uh, if there's one 
word in the, the uh, New Testament that describes this. It's right there in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. Now, they would have to go through a couple of key identification markers. One would be circumcision. Um, one would be dietary laws. And the Jewish dietary laws, the things that they could eat and couldn't eat. And also um, special feasts like the Sabbath and Jewish festivals. So the Judaizers then, if you kind of think of this spectrum here, you had the Gentiles way over here that didn't believe in Jesus, the Jews over here that, that, um, that didn't believe in Jesus, and then you'd have the Gentiles that were over here that go, it's always about Jesus, and, and we don't have to do anything with the Mosaic Covenant whatsoever. Um, then you would say, well, then you'd have this group then that would be Jewish Christians who would say, but no, 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 you have to become, you have to become Jewish in order to be saved. So they'd be at this end of that spectrum. So that's the Judaizer's view. Now let me uh, give you the hero of the story. Okay? The hero of the story here is the Apostle Paul, or Paul of Tarsus. Now if some of you are like, wait, I thought this was going to be early church history. We're, we're in the New Testament. Hey, this is part of church history. We got to get to this before we get to the second century because there's some things that, that kind of stem and flow from this or groups that uh, are kind of related to this. Okay? Uh, so this is the Apostle Paul. Now, who, um, where, anybody, this opened up to anybody, where do we first see the Apostle Paul in the New Testament? Acts and the stoning of Stephen. Yes, what is happening there in uh, Acts chapter Seven, I think. Eight. Seven into eight. It might be go into eight. I think that's yeah, where where you gets. see Paul, right? And so what happens in in Acts chapter, the end of, is it at the end of seven? Yeah, it's the very end of seven. Yeah. Yeah. So they dragged him out of the city city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay. So stop and think about that. Saul, or that was this, this uh, Hebraic name. Paul is kind of a, the, a Greek, uh, the Greek name that he took. Um, he is a young man there. He has some deal of authority because people are laying down their garments there mm -hmm. as they're uh, stoning Stephen. Uh, one of, and I would say he was one of the, the deacons of the early church. I think he was one of the, the deacons that was appointed in Acts chapter 6. Uh, and so they're laying down their garments, so he has a position of authority. It says he's a young man. Uh, what else do we know about the Apostle Paul? Well-learned. Well-learned, yep. Roman citizen. He's a Roman citizen? Oh, that's good. That's good. I didn't have that in my notes. He was a Roman citizen. A Pharisee. A Pharisee, yes. Where does it say that he was a Pharisee? He, he says it, yeah. Yeah, he claims it. Right? He claims it himself, yeah. I was like, the, he was like, he claims himself to be like the number one Pharisee. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, let's, as a matter of fact, let's turn to it. It's in Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at that. Where the Apostle Paul, and we'll come back to this too, but I thought it might be helpful since you mentioned it. Let's look at uh, Paul's own self-description in Philippians chapter, chapter 3. 
And if somebody would like to read, we'll do like we did last time, just read, read several verses, and then somebody else will take over. And um, forgive me, I'm not being rude if I stop you. It's just sometimes I, that I want you to stop there, and then I can make a comment. So um, start there, verse, uh, verse 1, and then we'll read down to about verse 8 or 10 or so. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are, circumci for we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory of, in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Somebody else. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I could finish it. Oh. Sorry, I just realized I was right there. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but from which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Mm. Okay, we'll stop right there. So yes, that middle section there, circumcised day to day, people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blame, blameless. Yes, so that's, that's the Apostle Paul. He wanted to say, he, want, he aspired to be the best possible Jew that he could be, according to the group of the, the Pharisees. Okay, so the Apostle Paul... And but what happens to him? He met Jesus. Met Jesus, right? What and what's he doing when he goes to meet Jesus? Acts chapter nine. He's going up to kill kill more Christians, basically, or put him in prison. Yeah, go to arrest and, and capture more more Christians. Okay. Then so, but then he meets Jesus. The Lord speaks to him, and. Um, Basically, I mean, just overwhelms Paul, right? Like, it doesn't it just blind him, speaks to him directly. They have to lead him by the hand into town. Um, they have to bring somebody to come and meet him, you know, to, to share with him. And then, like, scales fall from his eyes. And then what does he do after that? If you had the reading in Galatians, what, what happens to Paul right after that? Well, sometime around those times. Went to Arabia. Yeah, Galatians chapter 1. Yep. Or the Sinai Peninsula, we don't know for sure, but maybe down in that would have been considered the region of Arabia. And he was there for three years. He was down there for three years. I believe he was going back and searching through all of the scriptures because, because Jesus had spoken to him. He was breathing out murderous threats against Christians. And yet Jesus comes and speaks to him, and he goes back, and he has to now rethink and reorient his entire world, his entire worldview. He's grown up as a, as in a household 
faithfully committed to studying the law, to studying the scriptures, um, so much so that uh, he actually even becomes a disciple of Gamaliel, we talked about a little bit last week, right? One of the key branches there, and one of the, the key schools within Pharisaical Judaism. And so Paul was advancing in that beyond many his age, you would say, you know. So he's a leader in the church with, when, um, when we are first met to him, met, introduced to him in uh, the book of Acts. And then he meets, um, he meets Jesus, goes down for three years, and then he ends up coming and meeting the, the leaders in the church uh, at Jerusalem eventually. And then at some point he comes into a very heated debate with the apostle um, Peter in Antioch. We're going to talk more about Antioch here in a moment. Um, but let's go now back to Acts chapter 15 and see this is what is going on. The apostle Paul has now been welcomed into fellowship with, uh, with the church. And they had already commissioned him on to, um, to go and be a missionary to the Gentiles. And you see that missionary activity in chapters 13 uh, and 14 of Acts. And then let's back up into Acts chapter 14 as they're going through. And this is Paul and Barnabas on through their journeys. Um, and it says here, and when they had spoken, verse 25, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the who? To the Gentiles. So what happened with Cornelius and Paul, this first Gentile who becomes a Christian, um, the similar thing happens with Paul on his journeys. And he comes back and he's saying, hey, the, the Gentiles are now coming to believe in Jesus Christ. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So now here we get to the main issue that's happening uh, in the church. So back to that previous question. How Jewish do Gentiles need to be in order to truly be a Christian and to be saved? And so here, becomes, here comes the issue in the very first council in church history. We're going to get to several other church councils, Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, and those kinds of things. Uh, but the very first one actually occurs in the scriptures, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and it's the Jerusalem Council. So we'll take turns reading. Somebody begin reading in um, Acts chapter 15, and we'll hopefully this will help to clarify for us the difference between the heretics, who were the Judaizers, and Hero. Uh, which is Paul, but then it's going to be others here in a moment. So somebody begin reading Acts 15, verse 1. I'll read. Good. But some men came down from Judea and were seeking the brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> let's, let's stop right there. They, so uh, where are they coming from? Yeah, uh, Paul is coming from Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are. Uh, but there's some, they call them brothers. They came down from Judea. So coming down basically from Jerusalem area. 
And unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot what? Be saved. Wow. So this is a salvation issue. You've heard of, you know, various views that Christians will have, you know, that might disagree on some things. And you might hear people talk about, well, does, is what we're debating about, is this really a salvation issue? And some of them are not. Some of them are open up to discussion and we can debate. Um, these guys were saying, this is a salvation issue. You're celebrating the fact that Gentiles are becoming Christians. However, they're not Christians. They're not saved because they haven't been circumcised. Yes, this is a big issue. It's a big issue in the church, right? Keep this spectrum in mind, right? You have the, the Gentiles over here who are becoming Christians, and now there's these Jews that are over here that are saying, this is a salvation issue. Unless they are circumcised according to the laws of Moses, they're not saved. Uh, so, verse 2, or yeah, somebody pick up verse 2, verses 2 and 3. Anybody? Anybody? Preferably somebody who hasn't read yet. But. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Yes, the conversion of the Gentiles. They were just... It was kind of, they were lobbying their case. <laughs> it's like, hey, oh, there's believers. By the way, this is what we're going to go talk about. Do you want to join us in this? <laughs> this is our view. The conversion of the Gentiles. Then what's embedded there is the conversion of the Gentiles apart from circumcision, apart from following the laws of Moses. Okay, so they come to Jerusalem, and what happens? Verse 5, somebody read. There. They're making their case. Who is it who is it that's doing this? Uh, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. The party of the Pharisees, right. Okay. And so they need to get circumcised to believe the law of Moses. And so that's the issue again. Um, now we're going to that now the, the council, the issue's been put on the floor, and now some on the other side of the debate get to present their case. And they actually bring through three different groups of people to do that. Begins with the Apostle Peter. And I should remind you, what are the other names for Peter? Cephas. Cephas. Oh, good one. I didn't have that in my notes. Yeah, Cephas and Simon. Simon. Yep. And it's a derivative of Simon, another way of pronouncing it. Simeon, right. Okay, because that, that comes up in this passage. So, um, so Peter, yes, the rock. Rock Johnson. Wasn't he the son of Jonah's or something like that? Rock Johnson. Um, yeah, I think that's where he was. <laughs> what verse is that? <laughs> is Peter, where is that? It's in John. I think it's in John's gospel. Peter is son of Jonah. And so if he took the Jonah, John, it's rock. Yeah, anyway, that's. Can I, can I ask a tangent? First, sure. First tangent question. So if there were. Pharisees that became believers, wouldn't they be kicked out of the Pharisees, or did they have oh, yeah. believer Pharisees and non-believer Pharisees? That's a really good question. Yeah, so um, 
So would they continue to be Pharisees, or would they have to forsake their Pharisee-ness in order to be a Christian? <laughs> like, I forsake my pharisee um, Great question. What, do you, what are your thoughts? Would, anybody want to take a stab at what they think might be? Brandon? I think that it took time before the Pharisees basically rejected Christians as a part of the group. Mm. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that that's, uh, I think if they were rejected, I think because they rejected, I think they would reject some. Like the Pharisees were clearly rejecting Peter early in Acts as going around and you know, you're not to go and say this anymore. But at the same time, you know. At least the leaders of the Pharisees. The right? leaders of the Pharisees, yeah. So that's a good question. I'm not sure we know the. I'm not sure we know specifically, except to think that what's happening here in this issue is the key issue. I think maybe you'd have Pharisees that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and there was debates about it. But I don't know that that meant that they needed to leave the Pharisee, stop being a Pharisee at that moment. Especially if they're promoting circumcision and following the law of Moses, you would think that. Okay, you can believe there was probably a debate within Judaism, but now we're bringing in Gentiles. But yeah, yeah, you can believe in Christ because I'm sure some of them were there and saw him die, and now you know seeing this transversion of Paul and everybody else going, oh, yeah. But I I would guess I think it's early enough that there was still some openness in the Pharisee camp. Uh, I think later it becomes clearer in church history that there becomes a harder break. Um, and I think that part of what contributes to that break is what's happening here. It's the issue. Wait a second. I mean, it just is assumed that if a Gentile is going to believe in Jesus the Messiah, then he has to become Jewish. Um, so it was, it was more that and less that the Jews needed to stop being a Pharisee? That comes later, I think, but that's a great question. That's a really good question. Um, by the way, that's totally cool, asking tangential questions. So I, I want this to feel free. I'm not bothered at all by raising up your hand and interrupting. So I'll be disappointed if you don't, actually. I, <laughs> so please do. And if, and if nobody does, then I'll call on you to interrupt me. <laughs> and so, um, uh, let's see, where were we? Um, oh, Peter. Okay, so we begin with Peter in uh, verse 6. Somebody read from 6 to, say, 11. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they were. 
Mm. Yeah, so Peter spells out right there. The Gentiles are going to be saved the same way that we, and as a matter of fact, he kind of reverses it a little bit. We believe that we're going to be saved the same way that the Gentiles will be. He puts it in reverse order. So that's Peter. He stands up and does that. Now, um, Paul and Barnabas, it says Paul and Barnabas come up. So here's part two. Somebody want to read verses 12? Uh, read verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So among the Gentiles, this is kind of a little shorter description there. Um, I think mostly because Luke has been dealing with what Paul had just been doing um, about how the Gentiles were coming in the chapters prior. So he's just kind of given the little summary statement there in verse, verse 12. But Paul probably recounts a lot of the stories that you would see in chapters 13 and 14 leading up to this. So Peter goes, Paul goes, and Paul and Barnabas goes, and then now you have James. Now this is, uh, this is not James the author of the New Testament book. Uh, I believe that that is uh, Jesus' actual biological brother. Um, this is James, one of the uh, apostles here, and he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, no, he's not an apostle. He's not one of the 12, is he? Wait, is he one of the twelve? Yeah, he's one of the twelve. That's right. Okay, his brother's not. Okay, Jesus' brother's not one of the twelve. Um, so James replied, "Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, remember he's using Peter's Hebrew name here. Simeon had related has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name, and with this the word of the prophets agree." Just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. You'll probably hear that again, because that's actually in a couple weeks, because that's a, a quote from Amos, Amos chapter 9. So James says here, Amos chapter 9 says, what? That's kind of a tricky phrase. We'd have to unpack that quite a bit. But, uh, but basically he's saying here, no, Gentiles don't need to do this. He's going, the Lord God has promised even long ago that he was going to, um, when he would restore Israel, the nations would be included. I'll give you the summary. So that's, that's part of the message for October 31st. So don't skip it. There's more to it, that message, in Amos series. So don't skip that week. But uh, that's part of it. Okay? So here's his judgment, verse 19. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city, uh, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So what's the verdict here? Do Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to be saved? No. no. Kind of? Well, here's these four things that we really want you to really want to hold on to. Great question. Three, which seem really random and one makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's a good good observation. How many of you else kind of noticed that? There, well, they actually put included a couple of things there. Yeah. Um, so, what are your thoughts on that? The main. Oh. <laughs> the main marker of being Jewish was to be circumcised. Like, if you were to convert to Judaism, that was necessary. Hmm. So even though they said mm, they don't have to be circumcised, but it would be nice if they would observe these other things that you do. Yeah. But like the big marker of being Jewish, being circumcised, they said they can forgo that. Yes. Yes. So the big key identifier, what makes you, what basically means you've converted to Judaism. You're right. Is circumcision. So then, what are these? Is it is there, are they saying you need to to abstain from idols and sexual immorality and strangle meat in as the prerequisite to being saved for Gentiles? Or they're saying is this more uh, a sanctification issue? Well, it seems more like a pacification issue. Like, okay, fine, we'll cool. we'll keep this, we'll keep this, and and make the Pharisee group happy and you know a little bit. Yeah. But it's such a random list. Yeah. Yeah, I think it doesn't. Oh, Sorry, go ahead. No, please. No, go ahead. No, you go. I was just going to say the strangle thing. Was that something common that was done then, like to kill people or animals? It's, or? it's from the old code. Mm hmm. It's a Levitical. Yeah. It's, it'd be instead of cutting it open and letting the blood drain out, people, they weren't allowed to eat meat with blood in it, so if it was just oh. strangled. Yeah. What were you going to say, Daniel? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess it sounds to me like this is not, it's not like this is the exhaustive list of things you need to do, nor is it, nor does it sound like these are things you have to do in order to be saved. It's more like, okay, we've cleared up this issue about circumcision, but here are some things that are kind of the next highest priority them to deal with. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, I think that that's, uh, I think you're right. I think it's uh, a combination of what, how did you, you called it? Was it? Yeah, so not, I think it's part sanctification, sexual immorality, clear, New Testament letters everywhere is referring to that. Um, uh, meat, uh, Joe is exactly right in terms of the strangled meat. We couldn't eat the meat with the blood in it. Uh, so it was maybe not a sanctification issue. It could be part sanctification, but pacification issue. Because, hey, there's Gentiles in all of these cities. And Moses is read in all of these cities. You're going to have Jews that are going to have to interact and become into the, the Christian community. And still a part of the Christian community was reading through what were the scriptures at that time. Just the Torah. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I think the key is the, the last verse the, from for from ancient generations. So Moses has been preached all over the world from way before even Christ was there. Like Jewish people had moved around, so mm. they've been preached, and they probably, you know, some of the like idol idol worship, the uh, the the mosaic laws about you know sexual immorality were taught. Probably just clarifying that, yeah, you don't need to be circumcised, but you can't just throw away Ooh. the Torah. You have to listen to the actual, you know, you can't conform to society. You have to follow God's law. I mean, that is just a short 
version of what I'm thinking in my head. But, yeah. Yeah, they're going to have to be folded into mm -hmm. the church life, which at this point was still kind of connected to synagogue life, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there were there were Jews. They were going to the synagogue, and then Paul, when Paul is on his missionary journeys, where is he going? To the synagogues. And he's preaching for several weeks in a row in the synagogues, and he is getting converts in the synagogues. And so the early churches were in the synagogues. And so now you're going to have Gentiles that are coming in. And wait a second, we got these guys that are believing in Jesus as Messiah. How much Jewishness do they need to be? And that's the debate. They resolve it there and they go, but you know, it's just kind of as a matter of figuring out how we're going to get these people to live together. I think these are some of those, some of those things. I think it's representative. Don't know that those are the exhaustive four things, maybe. I mean, I think that's what's in the letter. They're going to have to unpack a lot of these later on. Um, but you see, it's just kind of in flux, right? The early church is just is really changing at this point. I feel like we have the same thing today, though, not specifically with um, Jewish issues, but more like we're always trying to figure out what's near Christianity mm. and what are we adding to it mm. because of our culture, you know? So when newcomers come in, what do are we are we telling them things that are above and beyond what God requires of them to to make them assimilate to us in a way that's culturally comfortable mm. for us, or is that actually biblical what we're telling them? I think yeah. that's something that's ongoing. That's a really good question. Can we come back to that one again? I know. I mean, I'm not interrupting you. I know you. But can we come back to your point when we talk? Because I want to talk about what are some of those ways practically. What we're like gonna solve it then. we're going to solve oh, it then? And then well, this is it. it's, right it's the Byron Center Council. We've yeah. just decided <laughs> here as a church council. Um, so yes, I think that that's uh, Rosie brings up a good point. Like, how do you um, what what is required? And I think that this the main issue here is: Do you need to be a convert to Judaism? and say, I'm now going to be a, a Jew and now need to fulfill all of the Mosaic, the Mosaic covenant. And they're saying no. And this is going to get unpacked a little bit more all throughout the New Testament. Other Another question? Yeah. And maybe this is what you were saying just a bit earlier, Alex. But I don't think the uh, early Christians saw themselves as what were a new religion. They were just kind of another sect of Judaism. And yeah. uh, they were still Jewish, but they had this new faith kind of added on to their Jewishness. Yeah. 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 Uh, go, go. I don't know. When did the term Christianity come into common use? Ooh, Christianity. Um, like I know they, they refer to the way. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of these real yeah. cryptic one-time use names for them, right? Um, and then, well, isn't it the, uh, we mentioned it, the city twice, Antioch. And was it, is it in Acts 14? What, what uh, where the Christians are first called Christians, I believe it is at Antioch. Yeah. What is that? What, what verse? Uh, it's in there. It's in there somewhere, yeah. Maybe it's later. 
Um, but if somebody wants to find that, they can. Yeah, somebody can find that. But but yeah, so that's when Christian gets. So again, it's a really kind of a muddy at, at this stage of the church history. You're they're figuring this out. They're they're coming to these questions and trying to figure them out. Um, how how Jewish is Christianity? How how Jewish must Christianity be? Um, that's this is what's being unpacked all through here. Um, but I would say that one thing that is being uh, kind of resolved here is the fact justification by faith or salvation is by faith in Christ alone apart from converting to Judaism. That's the main that's the main thing I think that is resolved here. That's the argument the argument in Acts 15. Uh, Paul, there's a second argument, and the second argument comes from the book of Galatians, the whole thing. So we're just going to read the whole thing right now. Not really. No, not really. We, uh, Can you restate the main theme that you just said came out of the Jerusalem Council? Yeah. The, uh, did somebody want to repeat back to me what I said? What I say? Salvation uh, is by faith in Christ alone. Christ alone, apart from circumcision. apart from circumcision and apart from converting to Judaism and performing the law of uh, Moses. Yeah, that sounds good. Is that what I said the first time? I want to make sure I say it. Play the tape back. Consistent, yeah. Play it back and see if that's right. Of the court reporter. Yes. Yeah, so um, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Apart from um, circumcision, for sure, but then the um, the traditional Jewish markers, which we, we saw was um, you know circumcision. There were also some other ones like um, what type of animals you can eat, so dietary laws, and then there were festivals and feasts. Uh, which they don't solve here in Acts chapter 15, but I think as you'll start to see um, in the argument from Galatians. And actually, so we're going to now look at Galatians, and um, I'm going to read off some verses and then have people just um, pick some. So uh, I'm going to kind of give some of the themes from Galatians, and so I want to just read like a, a verse or two, and I'll just say it, and then somebody read it, Okay. Um, and then some of this, some of these I actually got right from the ESV study Bible at the beginning. It has some of the themes of Galatians. I think some of these are taken right from there. I didn't mark quotations or so to notice which ones are which. I didn't footnote it. Um, but I know that a lot of these came from there. So here's a couple of the arguments from, uh, from Galatians. From Galatians. The gospel of Christ is not from man to God, but from God to man. So we don't, we're not offering righteousness to, uh, to a God who's willing to accept it. We receive the gift of righteousness from God through faith in Christ. So Galatians, this is seen basically, the, the, the idea here, the larger idea, is that this is God's work for us as opposed to a work that we would do for God. So, like Galatians 1.1, 1, 1. what does Galatians 1.1 1, Galatians 1, 1 say? 
all an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Yeah, so Paul's own calling as a missionary is like, this is from God. So as an extension of the, the justification by faith, my own calling is, is actually not even something that I chose. This was not from me, nor was it even from man. This was from God. Uh, verse 11 and 12, chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Yep. It's gospel from God. In verses 15 through 20. I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia. Sorry if I said that wrong. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who, who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Mm. Was that verse 24? Did you go to the old? Yeah. In college, you know, when you would write little verse, verses on cards to friends or, you know, girlfriends, I always put Galatians 1.24 on there. You know, knowing that a lot of people never looked them up, you know, and, <laughs> and they praise God nice. because of me. Yeah, so. <laughs> so. Is that part of your vows? <laughs> <laughs> Let me write the vows. Yeah. <laughs> so back back to this though. Paul's whole conversion and his calling, everything, all of that was a part of a. It's totally from a gift of God. That's just an extension of the idea that the gospel is uh, is a gift of God, and that salvation is not gained by works of the law, nor uh, but by faith. So we are justified by faith. Look at uh, Galatians chapter two, verse sixteen. I'll read verse fifteen. For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, he said like three times in there, right? That's a great, uh, great verse. And by the way, I, they, um, a lot of scholars believe Galatians was written before the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So um, it's kind of interesting to keep that in mind. He's maybe even rehearsing some of his arguments that he's going to be making in Acts 15. Um, perhaps, I don't know, but Galatians is, is written uh, prior to, um, to Acts chapter 15. Uh, to require circumcision then would be um, to supplement faith in Christ with something more, making it 
making faith in, it, in Christ being somewhat um, uh, insufficient. You know, if you have to supplement faith in Christ with these other things, then, then you're, you're having, it's deficient. It's not complete in itself. Um, notice what he continues. Um, notice Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Notice that's in, in, uh, in quotes, right? That's, that's a quotation from Habakkuk. Um, so you have to require circumcision, then would be kind of just adding a little bit more there. Um, and the Old Testament itself, as you saw a little bit right there in that passage, is testifying to this truth. Let's go back to chapter 3 of Galatians. And somebody want to read there a couple of verses at a time? We'll read through till, uh, till 9. <clears throat> o foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. But may I ask you only this? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? But if he who supplies the Spirit to you and work, works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that this is those... <coughs> that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Wow. What a great argument. Now, he's, a, he's pretty upset. We didn't get to this, but he's pretty upset with the Galatians. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you're abandoning the grace of the gospel and you're turning to an entirely different gospel. And what is it? It's because our Judaizers are going into these churches and requiring them to be circumcised. And so there's, uh, Paul is writing to them and going, wait a second, I'm hearing reports that you're, you're like celebrating that your circumcision as a Gentile, and he's like, why, wait, why are you doing that? That is actually even contrary to what the Old Testament itself says. So it's an interesting, we saw this with, uh, with Jesus arguing with the Sadducees, right? He doesn't quote from, from Daniel chapter 12 about the resurrection from the dead. He actually quotes from their, their scripture passage. Paul is arguing from the passages that the Judaizers would agree as authoritative. And he's arguing from those very passages in the Old Testament that no, you should not be doing circumcision because if you believe you are justified by faith, that is actually, um, that's actually the way it's been all along. He cites uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's going right there. It's in. You go to Genesis. It tells you. And that that's true for the Gentiles as well. 
and then into Genesis chapter 12, where um, the where God says that I'm going to make you a blessing, and that uh, those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And so, what is the blessing of Abraham? Paul says the, the blessing of Abraham is to believe as he believed in the one that Abraham believed in. So he's arguing from the Old Testament scriptures uh, itself. Any, any questions? Any questions there? So you could see why, like you adding circumcision here would be to, um, boy, that would be going uh, fiercely against uh, this gospel. As a matter of fact, he says something in here. What verse is that? Um, oh. oh, I can't, I, I don't remember which verse it is, uh, but he is very critical of those who are advocating the circumcision uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. So here's the conclusion. So here's the conclusion. Paul was a hero. He's driving home the idea. Justification by faith. The heretics were the ones saying, no, it's justification by faith in Christ and by converting to Judaism through cir circumcision and those kinds of things. Okay, so the material issue, the material issue in the middle of the first century church was the idea of justification by faith apart from works of the law, okay? Which coincidentally is also the material issue or the material principle behind the Reformation. Clark last week said church history began in the Reformation, right? Well, in a, in a sense, that what the Reformation was is a, basically a rediscovery of what was there in the, in the first century. It was applying what was argued in Acts chapter 15 and what Paul argued for in Galatians and what he does in a, to a much greater extent in Romans and everywhere you could see it in the, in the New Testament. It was, it was just going back and saying, wait a second, let's go back and look at these scriptures. The scriptures are saying all of these other man-made things that we've added to salvation, added to the Christian faith for salvation, these are all man-made, all of these are man-made rules it's actually justification by faith alone. So it's the material principle of the Reformation. It was the material issue in the first century. And so the hero is Paul and all of the apostles because they ended up coming along with all of this as well. And Peter too. Um, and it's the Judaizers, the one who are the, the, the heretics here. So the Judaizer view is outside of the bounds of Christian belief. Okay, the Judaizing view is outside of the bounds of, of Christian belief. Because the faith is being placed in something other than Christ and his yeah. and his work. Yeah, other than Christ alone. Not going backwards to the old covenant, it's the new covenant in Christ. Charlie, do you have your hand up? Anytime we add anything to the gospel, we're saying Jesus wasn't enough. Mm. So Paul had to argue this because it's, it's the gospel. It's yeah. central. Yep. 
Well said. Where is it in Galatians? And it's bothering me now a little. Paul actually says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the full way. I wish they would. Where is that verse? I wish they would go all the way. There it is, uh, 512. Was that what you said? Yeah. 512. Did you, you were looking it up while I was. So listen to what he's saying. Um, in chapter 5, verse 11. And again, he's continuing all through this. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I mean... I know we got a mixed crowd here. Some of us understand what circumcision are. Some of us don't. So I just realized we have a mixed crowd here. So he's being very ironic here. Okay. Um, moving on. Moving on. All right. So um, let me present some of the other views here, and then we're going to open this up for some discussion. Um, so you'd have the the... Gentiles who would be like, no, we don't have to follow the, the Old Testament at all. Paul writes against that quite a bit. He's like, no, no, actually, that's not really true either. Your justification by faith alone doesn't mean that there's nothing in the Old Testament that's of value. Um, uh, you you still have some moral responsibilities as well too, um, as well too. The um, but the Judaizers, you know, so you have the Judaizers here, that is outside of the bounds of Christian belief. So over here you have Paul, who's advocating for justification by faith alone. And I'd say here's a couple of variations in that middle. Um, and let me just read to you some of these. Again, these are also from the ESV study Bible. I thought that was kind of helpful. And so think of them now moving from kind of Paul's way toward this way, so they get increasingly dangerous from here to this way, Okay. So it's fairly safe, getting more risky here. Uh, so Jewish Christians, we'll call this group three, understood and accepted Paul's position, but their personal comfort zone was to be observant Jews, at least most of the time. Circumcision and kosher food laws uh, are not necessary for salvation or maturity, um, and they shouldn't be imposed on Gentile Christians. Okay, so that's pretty safe. So they're saying, okay, we get the Gentile thing, but I'm a Jewish Christian, and I'm still Jew. I'm still a Jew. I still want to follow kind of the culturally Jewish things. That's safe. Uh, as long as we reject the idea that Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to be saved. We reject that view. Here kind of in the middle is Jewish Christians should observe the traditions of the Mosaic Code. So it's going beyond just kind of like a personal comfort to like more of a, uh, a conviction um, of their, their conscience, I guess you maybe say. Um, should observe the traditions of the Mosaic Code, even if it was acceptable for Gentile believers not to see themselves as under the stipulations. So they would kind of maybe encourage Gentiles to do that. And then here over here in this other group, a little bit closer to the Judaizing group would be Jewish Christians should observe the Mosaic Code. Gentile believers can come to Christ through faith alone. However, the really spiritual should want to obey the Mosaic Law Code, even if it wasn't strictly necessary for salvation. So you see it's getting a little kind of more to the warning signs and the red flags. 
Let me give you one more hero, and then we'll open this up for discussion here. Uh, here's another hero, and he's on the back, page two. Ignatius. Ignatius, who was uh, a bishop, leader of the church, probably the third leader of the church, the, either the second or third leader of the church in Antioch's history. Notice the ages, uh, the years that he was born, approximately 35. Okay, so when Paul is in Antioch with Barnabas, and he, uh, they're getting ready to go from Antioch down to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, that's about 49 AD. So he's probably a teenager. He's like, you know, what are the ages here? 16. 16. So you're probably a little older than Ignatius would be. So you're about the age that Ignatius would be in Antioch as Paul and Barnabas were there at church. 13. 13? 13. 13, 15. So you guys are all pretty close to Ignatius's age if, assuming he's a part of the church at that time, which I think he probably was. So that means he knew, probably knew some of the apostles. Uh, he was um, a contemporary uh, of the apostles. He knew um, and was a colleague with a guy named Polycarp. Anybody heard the name Polycarp? Polycarp of Smyrna. Um, he wrote a letter to him that we still actually have today in print. So he wrote to Polycarp. Um, Polycarp himself was a disciple of the apostle John. So think about that. One of the apostles, James, Peter, James, and John in the sailboat, right? John, who wrote Revelation, he wrote First and Second, Third John, he wrote the Gospel of John. He personally discipled Polycarp, and I believe may have, uh, if he didn't personally disciple um, uh, Ignatius, uh, he certainly would have known, known of him. He wrote seven letters to the church. Like I said, we still have. Um, we're going to see his name again when we see some of the other uh, heretics uh, in, down the road. He was martyred in Rome about 110 AD or 115. That's why there's several different dates there. And according to tradition, he died in the Colosseum. He said that Christianity is greatest when it is hated by the world. Amen. I feel like Christianity is getting to its greatest time. Uh, but here's a couple of quotes. Uh, somebody want to read those out loud for all of us. I know they're written there, but if somebody would read uh, three people take turns reading what he wrote in a couple of his letters. Uh, be not deceived with strange doctrines, nor with old fables which are unprofitable. For if we still live according to the Jewish law, we acknowledge we have not received grace. Be not deceived with strange doctrines, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, and things in which the Jews make their boast. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For if we still live according to the Jewish law and the circumcision of the flesh, we deny that we have received grace. Wow. Pretty, pretty clear cut yeah. right there. It's a denial of grace. Yep. So this is dating to uh, decades after the end of the New Testament. What's the next one? Somebody read that. It is absurd to profess Christ Jesus and to Judaize, for Christianity did not embrace, no, literally, quote, believe into. Yeah. Okay. Those are those are the footnotes there, yeah. But Christianity did not embrace Judaism, but Judaism Christianity. 
so that every tongue which believeth might be gathered together to God. Mm-hmm. Abide in Christ, that the stranger may not have dominion over you. It is absurd to speak of Jesus Christ with the tongue, and to cherish the mind of a Judaism which has now come to an end. For where there is Christianity, there cannot be Judaism. For Christ is one, in whom every nation that believes, and every tongue that confesses, is gathered unto God. And those that were of a stony heart have become the children of Abraham, the friend of God. And in his seed, all those who have been blessed, who were ordained to eternal life in Christ. So here, uh, Ignatius, and again, he, he was a bishop at uh, Antioch, um, and he wrote a great, about a great deal of controversies and issues in the church today. He, in several places, wanted to kind of establish quite firmly that the view of Judaizers... The Judaizing view that would require circumcision and uh, obedience to the law would be outside of the bounds of grace. So he is also one of the the heroes here, Ignatius. Um, Yeah, questions. We'll open us up to some question times. No, good. Would he have made a distinction between a, a like a religious Judaism and a cultural Judaism? Yeah, so what is he referring to well, in by... looking at the phrase, there cannot be Judaism, whether it's Christianity. Like, was he saying that, that there was no distinction, or that, that basically you can't be culturally Jewish anymore? Yeah, right. Christianity. Yeah, I think it's um, the, the Judaism of which he speaks there is kind of uh, up there with the other one, with the Judaize. It's the, he's speaking of this category of Judaism, that would say um, that that circumcision would be required because that view would continue on. You still had these people, even though they, uh, the church council in uh, Acts 15 kind of defined that. You started to have now that was a splinter group. And so he's writing uh, and he's addressing that group in particular. But, in, but your other question was, the other part of that question was, so could you be culturally right. Jewish? Yeah, he's not writing against that. I don't believe that that's what he's doing. But yeah, that's a good question, though. Okay, so any other questions about this before we jump into some like get into discussion about it and kind of thinking through the implications and modern equivalents of this? Any others? Yeah, Jared. What was the Uh, about 49. Does anybody have the timeline from last week? It might be in there. Pretty sure it's in there. Right around 49, 50. No? Did I not put it in there? Yeah. That's a big oversight if I left that out. Yeah, Paul and Peter are Oh, yes, that would be the one, yeah. 48-49, okay, yeah. And which is also the date of Galatians, about 48-49, okay. Um, have you heard the word legalism? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like Rachel has. Rachel, have you heard it? Southern Jewish. Never. 
Um, okay, so how, so I, there's a couple of questions. In modern day usage, how is legalism used? And based on our conversation here, if we would consider the Pharisees kind of like legal legalism, we're going back to doing the law of Moses. Um, is it used appropriately today? Or what ways is it used appropriately, and what ways is it not used appropriately? So, legalism. How is it used today? Most of the time when people accuse you of legalism, really what they're accusing you of is binding the conscience of the believer where the scriptures don't. Mm. Oh, could you say that again? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Usually when someone accuses you of modern day legalism what they're really accusing you of is binding the conscience of another believer where the scripture does not that's well said Now, the way that uh, Rachel just defined that there, would that be an appropriate accusation of legalism then? I no. think so. You said no? You said no? But Brandon said yes. Well, if I'm understanding her correctly, when you say binding the conscience, right, do you mean placing, an, uh, placing a responsibility or burden on somebody? Yes, that's what I mean. Whereas my understanding, true legalism, is 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 demanding some sort of works for salvation or making something you do or don't do a stipulation of your justification. Right. Okay. Such as being circumcised to be saved. Yeah. That's true legalism. That's true legalism. So yeah. So what you were saying earlier then is, uh, because it was the last part when you said um, outside of the scriptures, you know, because sometimes you could make, uh, you could tell somebody who's professing to be a Christian, and they may be doing something that's clearly forbidden in the scriptures, and you could confront them on that, and then, uh, and this has happened, where then they come back with the accusation, well, that's legalism. I, you know, I got freedom in Christ, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that would be an inappropriate way. That's, that's not legalism. That's not legalism, right? There's, there are things that are binding on Christians according to what's revealed in the New Testament, for instance. Um, so though we have three definitions. Right, I was going to say we have kind of three here, little tweaks. I think there may be a fourth, if I'm not mistaken, um, when Jesus accused the Pharisees of legalism, weren't they often, wasn't it often a matter of using the law to get around things, like mm. finding loopholes, not saying, hey, Paul, you have this obligation, but hey, I can sidestep these obligations by, you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Take care of my Calling aging parents because, yeah. Yeah, the the Corbin. Yep. Didn't was am I mistaken in remembering that that was referred to as legalism? No, you're. I think you're right. He and he refers to that as uh, you have forsaken the law of God for the commandments of men. Yeah, and so um, 
So they're, yeah, they're using the law, but they're basically, essentially, it's their commandments, their man-made commandments that they're imposing upon um, on others. You tie bills and all this sort of stuff that you, you undue burden on the people, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the uh, example of legacy is uh, used for us uh, when, when he talked about people uh, dedicating their uh, assets to God or to the temple. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, of course, God's law because their parents were living in poverty or whatever, yeah. and they did not honor their parents. Uh, therefore, they followed man's law that broke God's law. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a, a, I'll give you the reference. It's in other places, but I think it's in Mark uh, 7. Mark chapter 7 is the one that we're uh, talking about here. So you could look that up uh, on your own. But um, Yeah, these were based upon the traditions of the elders. Um, there are many other traditions they observe. And then Jesus adds this, you know, um, you're thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many such things you do. Yeah, that's a, so that would be legalism. Yep. Um, that's what I was kind of thinking of. Like, when does tradition and legalism, are they like a clear delineation or is it sort of someone's definition of it? Because just thinking about growing up in the Mennonite church, how many traditions they were, but you you really needed to do those things to be mm. a part of the church. Yeah. So, and then they would say, well, all the ladies have to wear dresses on Sunday. Well, you're just being legalistic. But they would point to probably someplace in the Old Testament about women dressing like women, I'm sure, and saying that that is required. Mm. So is that legalism? Is that just tradition? Yeah, in Leviticus it says to wear denim skirts. Levi? Levi's? Right there. Oh, sorry, I totally got that. And that kind of goes with what you were saying, Rosie, about things that are required that they don't have to. Yeah. So there's, there's, there are. It is legitimate to make accusations of legalism if the legalism, in this case, would be man-made rules that are contrary to what the scripture says, right? Um, but in, in, inappropriate accusations of legalism would be an example. Baptism goes both ways. Baptism, explain that some more. Well, some churches uh, insist on baptism and say you have to be baptized, and others is it's a um, public display of our faith. Mm. Jesus calls for baptism, so it's not to be denied, and yet when a church mandates it, then it becomes legalism. Yeah. Mm. Rachel asked what? What? <laughs> what? I'm confused as to what you're saying. So you're saying that like it's a good thing, but it's not a requirement on a believer? No, I didn't say that. 
Why? Okay. So, can you um, further explain your example? Well, when when the church mandates baptism for salvation. Oh. Oh. Okay. Okay. okay the salvation part. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now I understand. Yeah. So is that the linchpin, a linchpin on which legalism is determined? If it's do X to be saved, is that otherwise it's just a tradition or a suggestion or a strong conscience? Yeah, I think it's at least that. Okay. Yeah. yeah not less than that. I'm wondering. I mean, similar to Jim, growing, growing up, I mean, yeah. we were told like you do not go to the movie theater, you do not go to dance, you do not play cards. I would call that legalism, but that yeah. wasn't tied to salvation. It was just we don't, you just don't do these things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, normally they would say you don't do those things because you can't truly be in a right relationship with God if you do those things. So they wouldn't go so far as to say it's a salvation issue, but you're, you're standing in your righteousness and your holiness and your piety hinged on what you did and didn't do. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a sanctification it's, issue at least. Yeah. Sanctification yeah. is... Stunted. And it's getting, that's getting borderline, it's getting the yellow flag, you know, <laughs> more closer to the yellow flag warning area, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, Ethan. And then, kind of similar to the whole thing of like the whole uh, topic of like swearing, where it's not necessarily a salvation issue, but I have seen a lot of Christians justify the reasons they do swear because it's not a, a sanctification. Ah, uh, yeah. So See that. Like, exactly what you said, Rachel. They're just like standing on that, but it's hindering their relate. Like it's like they're it's hindering their relationship because they're standing in their sin, but it's not sin because it's or is it sin? But then if it's sin, is it a salvation issue or not? So it's like a weird like people try mm. to like. Well, because it's not a salvation issue, because I do believe I'm saved by grace, I don't have to worry about this. But then it's like a good Christian who tries to pursue that right relationship with God would should pursue sanctification. So then you would think that they would be, have conviction when they read the scriptures and it says, don't let crude language come out of your mouth. Mm. So then it's like, but then the question is, what do, what is defined as crude language? Because I've heard people say, that words don't have meaning, it's just a socially constructed, you know, uh, society decides if it's a bad word or not, so then if you go to a different country, are you swearing or not? So then it's like, it, I feel like sometimes it's just, they use that excuse to just ignore the work that they have to do to allow themselves to be sanctified. Yeah. So then it's like, I know I can't even have a conversation with you because my opinion doesn't matter. Yeah. So it's like, okay. That's a really good point. Like, is that's that I think you gave a good example of an illegitimate accusation of legalism when it may not be legalism, but it's right. used as a defense right. for justifying my behavior. Jeff, you had your hand up. Yeah, I was just thinking like with the issue of crude language, it's sort of hard to know where to draw where to draw the line because like just like we were talking about a minute ago. When he says, like, I wish they would emasculate themselves, that's very crude language. You know? yeah. And he says worse than that. Well, but I also think there is a distinction between using irony and also just saying crude language just to say crude language for the sake of saying crude language mm. because 
that's how I talk. Or yeah. Yeah. I mean, at times, like maybe 20 years ago, it was more shock value, but nowadays it's just you can't have a conversation with some people and every other word is the F word. Like, is that really your vocabulary? Mm. Yes. Yes, in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> Which it is. But then it's like my question would be the question I already said, like, but then to talk to go up your point, Gabe, like, I am, like, like, I'm pretty sure there is a pretty fine line with the whole crude language thing. Like, if it convicts you, it's wrong. But then if it doesn't convict you, seek out that potential um, guide, seek out that guidance from scripture and ask other, you know, believers, like, is this something I should be worried about? And then if you're not being convicted about something that like 90% of Christians are being convicted about, maybe there's a heart check issue that you have to be doing. I mean, I don't know. It, it's, it's a whole thing, but I feel like it's also highly ignored. Yeah. <laughs> and at least the general Christian society, yeah. specifically talking about swearing. Charlie? Yeah. Uh, James says, you'll know them by their deeds. And... Uh, Sometimes you have to question if somebody actually knows the Lord, or if it's a cool thing, or you know whatever. But, but if someone acts, when we think of God as uh, what He's done for us, um, it's it's pretty hard to let crude language come out of your mouth. And then those are the same people who are saying it's more loving to let someone choose their own. Um, conviction, but then when you say your conviction on it, it's like, oh no, like you can't talk about that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so we can't. Like, your opinion. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can't talk to me about this topic because I'm not convicted on it. But yeah. then it's like, but I am, so like, why can't I talk about it? Because, I mean, then it's like, well, then why can't I talk about, you know, being saved by grace through faith? when some Christians aren't fully on board with that. So it's like, it's weird. Yeah, so, so that Christian will say to you, well, claiming to be a Christian, will say to you, yeah. man, you don't go serve anybody, you don't go serve the poor. Sure. You, you, you have no works whatsoever. I'm just swearing. <laughs> <laughs> I go, and I, and I, yeah. and then of course, the kitchen, within the whole, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm doing this, yeah. I'm doing that, look at me, you know, the Pharisee in the synagogue saying the big prayer mm -hmm. up on everybody and sure. And the best then ultimately seat. I would say it the Lord knows our heart the most. So right. like ultimately it is between them and the Lord. Like I don't have an ultimate say on their lives if they are a true Christian or not. But, you know, fact other factors involved, it's like like then it's like, okay, as your brother and then hopefully you would do this for me too, like can we try to figure this out together when it's like we're not actually trying to figure it out together, we mm. just want to be left alone. And then that just tells me you're not pursuing sanctification yeah. and you're not seeking the counsel of the Lord. Yeah. yeah and then they're using that as a, yeah, uh, again, just, just using that to, just not have to, decide to avoid to your vocabulary. Yeah, to do that. So. Like, come on. Yeah. I just wrote down in Galatians 22, Galatians 5 22, rather. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Against these things. Yeah. 
there was no law. Yeah. It's there's there's a lot of wisdom in merely describing it as crude language rather than being very specific. Take a you know, he said, well, here are the nine words you should know. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. People people could be extremely crude and not use all those words mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. So we can find ways around some very specific uh, because it allows for cultural Right, disparity. and it would always change, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. strong language that is like his purpose is to bring them to repentance. His purpose is not shock value or show how cool he is or mm. show how he has an association with edgy people or something. Like yeah. His motive is holy. Um, I think, I think it is shock value though. He's making a point as strong right. as he possibly can. It's not merely shock value. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So then should we go around and like you should go effing repent. Like, where's that line? Let pastors do that. Where is this? I vote. I vote no. Council of Pirates, there is really no. Seems like there are some Who seconds that? Podcast. There's a podcast you should. Thank you, Rachel. Second. All right, let me, shift, let me shift gears a little bit and go to like some application here. And I'm thinking of the Judaizers. Um, can you think, okay, going back to our conversation about the Judaizers here, the ones that inter appear in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, uh, that are making these things, hey, you need to do all of the Jewish stuff because like <coughs> God's God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus comes out of that. And so... Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things, but yeah, you still have to go back and, and do Judaism. Can you think of some modern examples of modern-day Judaizers? Catholicism. What's that? Catholicism. 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 Are they literally Judaizers or just yeah. analogous? I think they... Yeah, yeah, that's a... Yeah, analogous. Form these seven things. Yeah. Which only did I five can. Mormons. Rachel can. You say something? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say um, people that consider themselves to be Messianic Christians who, even though they are not ethnically Jewish and have no frame of reference, are being drawn into keeping Torah keeping kosher, keeping the Friday and Saturday Sabbath, all of the dietary laws, all of the feasts and festivals, and are being taught that if you really want to effectively and authentically and know, know Christ on a level that no other Christian does, you really need to go back to they say it's not keeping the law. They'll say that Christ fulfilled the law, but that you still need to do that because Jesus never said not to continue in the law, even mm. though he said he fulfilled it. And so there are a lot of Christians that have been duped into basically everything that Galatians described. <laughs> yes. So uh, the Hebrew the Hebrew roots movement. 
It's or, co- or Jewish Roots Movement. Are you familiar? Anybody else familiar with that? Messianic Jews. Well, Messianic Jews would actually be ethnic Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they would probably be in group three or four or, you know, three or four. Um, like Jews for Jesus would adamantly reject any notion that you need to do the Mosaic law and circumcision and all of those things. Yeah. But there are the uh, there are Hebrew roots movements, which is to go back and uh, go back and to authentically, I think you used the word authentically, authentically be real, genuine, like first century Christians requires going back and being doing the Jewish stuff culturally. And some of them are borderline, they're like five, group five, if not in group six, if not just outside the bounds. But yeah, the Hebrew roots movement. Nobody else has heard of this? Yeah, I've heard of it. Sure. The law of Moses. What do they mean by that? Now, he gives laws for sacrifices and rules, but Jesus didn't come to fulfill the Ten Commandments, right? Like, is there, like, a difference? Yeah. I'm not confused, but, like, in my head I'm going, okay, he came to fulfill the law. He was the final sacrifice. So that system and the festivals probably kind of disappear because they are sort of related to all that, but mm-hmm. yeah. um, well, at least the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system. I don't system, know, yeah, I don't know, yeah I, I, that could be debated. I mean, obviously it was. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, you bring up a good point. That is, um, so here's the distinction that a lot of the reformers made about that question, because you're, you're following it to its logical conclusion. If we're justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, then you're like, well, wait, then what's the works of the law and what, what has been fulfilled? So you're following to natural like conclusion, and that's what a lot of reformers worked on. And they were able to do, and I'm just giving you this one. I'm not going to tell you it's my view. It is my view, but, you know, <laughs> but here's the view. They, they have, uh, there's, a, there's, a three, there's a threefold distinction when it comes to the, because you should say law means, like that could mean an actual law. The law could mean just the Ten Commandments or the, you know, the, it, laws used different ways at different times. I'm going to say the Mosaic Covenant, right? The Mosaic Law. So God appears to, brings people out of Egypt and he uh, makes a covenant with, uh, uh, with them on Mount Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments and then he gives them a whole bunch of rules and he says, and build me a house and then, then on down into Deuteronomy, okay? So they would say they're, they're able to recognize a threefold distinction there, that some of those laws are moral laws, some are civil laws, and some are ceremonial laws. And so um, I, I have come to agree. I think that that's a, you could see textual evidence for distinctions between the ones. So you'd have laws and stipulations. And so you need to do these rules as you live in the land. So he's speaking to Israel. As you live in the land. 
So why do you build a little fence around the roof of your house to protect people from falling off? Is that a moral law? Maybe by implication, but that's a civil law. Like why, so if the guy, like we did on Sunday, we talked about on Sunday, you, hey, watch my, watch my uh, donkey for me. And then you come back and collect the donkey. And, Dude, the donkey's gone. You know, it's like, well, then you need to make restitution. No, I don't. Like God says, no, no, no. Okay, if the donkey gets, you know, devoured by an animal, go rescue some of it so he has some proof. That's an example of the civil laws. Mm-hmm. Then you have the ceremonial laws, which is when you do these kinds of sins. If you're, right. if you're rich, you need to offer this. If you're poor, you need to offer this. You have to do these kind of ceremonial things. Those are all ceremonial laws. But then um, there is uh, also the moral law as is summar- summarily comprehended in the, the Ten Commandments. And so you have within the moral, there's the Ten Commandments is not equated with the moral law, but it's represented fully there, like it's, it's there. Um, and all of which are repeated in the New Testament. So you could see all of the Ten Commandments are repeated uh, as binding for Christians, not as the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai, but as the moral underpinning behind it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You had two questions here. Oh, go ahead. Who wants to go first? Uh, I, yeah, I was, you know, uh, mentioned that Jesus didn't, uh, uh, didn't say that the Ten Commandments weren't valid. Um, in fact, he actually made them more difficult. Yes, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, some of them he's quoting the, the, the traditions and the rules, but he, some of them he's quoting the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament says, laws. You know, you, you've heard, do not, do not kill, and I tell you, uh, you know, if you hate your brother, yeah. you're a murderer. I mean, yep. So he's, he's got, got a, taking it behind the letter of the law to like the spirit of the law. Yeah, and all of those are reaffirmed in the in the the, the New Testament. Uh, the civil laws are uh, are were applicable to Israel in the land. Now, only to the extent that it there's you know uh, I forget the words the term that the London Baptist Confession of Faith uses for it. Um, uh, but basically, if there's if there's a, a, a principle or um, General equity thereof, that's the term. If there's a general equity, well, like, should we put, you know, barriers around our deck, for instance? We would think it's a good idea. Should we have laws to do so? Yeah, we do so. Part of it is because it comes from the Mosaic laws. They would have rules like that. So, so the general equity, do we do it because it's in Deuteronomy? Or we say, no, that's actually a good idea, and it's represented. The general equity of it is there. So, but it's not... In, um, so the moral law still is binding upon Christians. Jesus deepens that moral law. Um, the civil laws are binding only on Israel during that time, but we have laws to the general equity thereof. But the ceremonial laws have been done away with completely in Christ. Read Hebrews. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point of Hebrews. Like, right, yeah. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> don't do that. So, so is that yeah. three-part distinction biblical i think it is yes can you refer to passages that make that distinction um i can't not now but i but i can yeah (laughs) Uh, a really great book if you really want to get into it is uh, a book by 
His last name is Ross. I think it's called From the Finger of God. And it is, a, it is basically an exegetical study and the defense of the threefold distinction in the law. I, I, when I first heard these ideas, I go, I could kind of see it there um, in uh, Ross's book. Uh, Philip, Philip Ross, I think is his name, From the Finger of God. He makes the case from the text itself for the basis for there, there is actually there. So um, you can make the case that it's there. So like stipulations, uh, precepts, stipulations, like all of the different terms, those would be, he even shows how some of those are referring specifically to the civil laws. Okay. Yeah. So. And can you, given any law in the Old Testament, uh, by principle, not simply by intuition, determine which category it goes into? Uh, well, yes, I think part of that answer, one example would be some of the terms that are used. There's a whole cluster of terms used for the, the rules and laws and stipulations and precepts and those kinds of things. Um, a lot of those are used for the civil. So the one example I just gave, uh, whereas, you know, like Torah would be would be broader, but also more specific to some moral things too. But um, I just refer you to that book. We could talk about that more, but that Philip Ross book is was convincing. I I I, I came in kind of wanting to believe it. I think I believed it, but I wanted to see some evidence. And then I read that, and I was like, Wow, that's actually really good. Yeah, I think it's there. So there's other articles and stuff that write about, it. but that book is, and it's funny. You get these biblical scholars that write, and it, they, they're like, oh, that's really sharp, witty British humor there. It is really, it's really good. So um, I think it's Philip Ross. Um, Hebrew roots movements. Here's some clues to look for in Hebrew roots movements. Uh, so the Hebrew roots movements would say, you know, we should do these Jewish festivals. Um, you should, we should study Torah, right? Like, uh, Rachel, did you mention that? Like, yes. the studying Torah. Uh, some other clues I've seen, like if they refer to, they, they don't refer to Jesus as Jesus. They refer to Jesus by his Hebrew name. You know, Yeshua. What's that? I'm all for that. I'm all for it too. You know, I think it's cool. But they're usually arguing from the, the they're arguing you shouldn't use Jesus because that is a corruption of Jesus's of Greek and the the real influence was man the Jewish we lost our whole Jewish roots to the Christian Christian faith thing so we it's not like you know Yeshua which is what his name was in Hebrew um, we should never use Joshua. Jesus yeah That's why I'm oh yeah <laughs> uh, yeah got Wait, so uh, uh, that group I've not heard of it but is that primarily Jews or is that primarily non-Jews who are these are uh, I, a lot of them are Gentiles who are jump they, in. Are they primarily American. Um, that would I, that the only ones I know of. Yeah. So I'm just but, wondering. So many people groups have a culture that goes with their people group, a very clear, distinct culture. We really don't, and so it wouldn't surprise me to see Americans jump on, kind of mm. latch onto. Hey, here's an actual culture, and then kind of slowly kind of make that part of their yeah. religious um, thing. Uh, 
like the Windsor Crest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's that's a, a good multi, point. Multicultural centers, and, you know, you've got to have a culture to, you know, Irish American Center. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Rosie. Yeah. <laughs> the Dutch American Center. The, you know, you don't need those. Those are all over the place around here. Can't swing a dead cat with that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, it's probably more prevalent in America. Like, uh, we got this thing we can do. Yeah, culture. Culture. I got one. I didn't have one. Now I can use the multicultural center. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good point. I think yeah. I know there, I can. I'm way too middle aged and white. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was uh, so I I have was introduced at one point to a group uh, to a Torah study from an organization called First Fruits of Zion, and it was there were some really cool parts to that because they kind of taught you a little bit of Hebrew, which was fascinating. It's like oh, kind of learn the Hebrew names of the books and and uh, but then. Um, so there was an appeal to that, to like this cultural thing. It's like, ooh, wow, that's what would it be like to like Saturday night at sundown, shut things down, and you know, like, ooh, that's an interesting uh, countercultural. Felt like it was a part of your commitment to Christ. Was like, you know, um, but then it started to get to a little bit of uh, after studying through some of the stuff. I'd be like, you guys never cite Galatians. That's always why you don't ever cite Galatians. You know. Um, <laughs> So that would be so. Those are the types of things to look for in those groups. I totally with you. I, there's something that was really kind of appealing about the Jewish culture, and I had been to Israel, so that was fascinating. I mean, that just added layers to that. Um, but there's a turn when it comes to the Judaism. This, the movements now, the Judaizing now. Um, you can't use the name Jesus because it's a corruption, or the New Testament wasn't written in Greek, it shouldn't have written in Greek, or some of them will even say um, we should only follow certain books, but that, that's coming in a little bit later in a couple of lessons. So. Wait, they say the New Testament wasn't written in Greek, and what is their evidence for that? Well, for one, one they'll, they'll say that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew for one instance. And is that true? I don't think there's a Hebrew manuscript of Matthew. That dates, that dates to the first century. I mean, unless they copied it, but right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a deep suspicion of everything Greek right. in, a, in a, uh, an attempt to, to really focus on the Hebrew side. Which is exactly opposite of what God intended for the whole Greek thing. Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Because there was a Greek Old Testament and a Greek New Testament. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the writers... That book I read in the Christ Key, where it goes back and points to like there's words that they would have, they knew that only people who were reading the Greek Old Testament would have understood what Paul was saying. Mm. Yeah. So, but that just goes against the whole like yeah. the providence of God. They're trying, yeah, they're yeah. trying to go. <laughs> they're, they're going. They're, the Hellenism was bad. Right. Was bad for the Christian faith, and therefore we need to go back to it. And so there really is kind of a. A, a new apostolic reformation feel to it. It's like we lost, the, the early church lost its way when it got to Greek and left its Jewishness and so we need to go back to that. Like everything Greek is pagan. Like those are the yes, same right. Yeah. So if you encounter, if you encounter some of those things. So, um, so yeah. the sort of impulse that everything Greek is pagan can be very similar to an impulse that everything that moves back to 
connecting to Judaism is necessarily Judaizing. Say that again? So the sort of impulse of everything Greek is pagan, sort of this knee-jerk reaction to, well, I associate Hellenization with paganism, therefore I'm going to treat all of it as pagan and evil, can be analogous to, you know, there can be a reaction to everything that tries to tie back into the Old Testament and to Jewish tradition and assume that the end is going to be, oh, now you have to do this. and mm. It's not just good to recognize that Jesus was Joshua or Yeshua, but you can't say the word Jesus. Like, yeah. There isn't... One thing does not necessarily lead to the other. Mm. Right. So, I mean, some of these groups sound really interesting, and I don't know how exactly you would smoke out the... <laughs> you know, how you'd get them to admit whether or not they're going to eventually say, oh, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, but much of what they may be offering may be really good. Yeah. Yep. Or at least not bad. At least not, yeah, at least bad. not bad. Yeah. And like I said, there's, there's kind of that, those middle groups here, you know, that were like, that were juiced by conviction. You know, that just, they're my conscience. I want to, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and I want to continue to be Jewish. Um, and Gentiles are justified in the same way that I am, but I'm going to continue. I kind of like want to continue to be Jewish. Yeah. yeah. There's, no, there's no red or yellow flags there. Um, but some of the other groups, when they start arguing like, the New Testament has been corrupted. You shouldn't use Jesus because that means Yahweh is Zeus or whatever. You, those, those, you're getting there. You're going down a different, uh, right. that, that's closer to this end of the spectrum. Would you so. say like people who, like incorrect people, like use Jewish writings from past the New Testament? Yes. So right. like, you know, some. The know, rabbis. The rabbis yeah. from, you know, 1910. He wrote this, and man, this is gospel truth now. All yeah. of a sudden, you know, like, yeah. Um, that, that is a that's the there, kind of thing that we're like, whoa, yeah. hey. You know. There is a little flavor of that too, yeah. quoting like the Mishnah or Talmud and stuff, which is post New Testament. Right. Like that's New Testament and later, and Judaism wasn't quite the same. Right. You know, in the second or third century, as it was before AD seventy. You know, so. Um, yeah. Any last little questions, comments? Let me read. Let me read a passage here, just as a uh, to closing devotional. Colossians. Let's look at Colossians chapter two. We're going to be getting into Colossians, uh, and actually, I'll just tell you this now, Colossians is your reading assignment for next week's class. Colossians and 1 John. I'll put that in the email, but um, you can read Colossians and 1 John for next week's class. That gives you a little bit of a hint of who the, who the bad guys are next week. <laughs> a little bit. Um, Galatians, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 I'll start in verse 11 and I'll read to uh, verse 23. 
in him, that is in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's remind them that they are circumcised in Christ even when they were in their uncircumcised state. And so those things like Sabbaths, new moons, festivals, those were the shadow of the things to come, and Christ is the substance. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you for your wonderful word. Uh, we thank you for the truth that, that you save us and justify us through Christ and in Christ alone. And uh, we thank you uh, for that truth. And uh, God, we pray that we are nourished by it and strengthened by it. Um, and we're grateful that the early church was able to work through the distortions to that. That even in the Old Testament, uh, that you're, you have in the Old Testament itself the promise that we are justified by faith alone. Um, apart from the works of the law. And so we thank you that you have actually now made one people uh, out of uh, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. You've created a new humanity. And so, God, we pray uh, that you give us uh, alertness to see those errors as they crop up. Uh, help us to be diligent um, to, to recognize those, uh, but then also recognize the ways in which your scripture calls us to... Um, to live righteously and to be sanctified in this, in this day. And so 
We pray that you do that more and more in us by the Holy Spirit until Christ indeed comes back or we're called to glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Thanks, everybody. Um, if you do have some other questions and stuff, feel free to email me. But Colossians, 1 John for next Her Heretics and Heroes. See you, Rachel. Everybody say bye to Rachel. Everybody says bye. Also, if you anybody is looking for like a books on church history, like I have a couple here I would recommend if you're wanting like like ooh this is fun I want to read a big long book on church history. Said nobody. You know what Janet's thoughts are on it. <laughs> I have recommendations if you do not follow. This one's actually this one is actually it covers all of church history and it's pretty pretty simple. Do you have a veggie version? Gotta stop trusting Phil Fisher. He's gone. Yeah, he's gone. He's off the he's off the reservation now.